0: it's super easy just go to current.com slash okay okay and download the app that's current.com slash okay current is a financial technology company not a bank banking services provided by choice financial group member fdic and cross river bank member fdic welcome to okay computer i'm dan nathan joined by deirdre bosa cnbc's host of tech check debo welcome back to the pod
1: hello happy to be back
0: it's, it's been a busy couple weeks for you. I know that because it's hard to get in touch with you. I see you on TV all day long. It's been the <laughs> magnificent six or five reporting over the last kind of week and a half or so. There's been a whole host of other earnings that I, I think are really interesting on a day like today. We're taping this Tuesday afternoon, a Pinterest up more than 20% or so. That sort of move in this environment is, is interesting to me. But again, small company, I guess the ones that are capturing... All the headlines was the Amazon, the Google, Apple is coming up here. After we run through mega cap tech earnings, I sit down with Stuart Sop, CEO and co-founder of Current, and his co-founder, Trevor Marshall, who's also the CTO over there. The three of us were out at Money 2020 last week in Vegas, and we're going to do a little wrap on some of the trends out there and some of the mood out there as it relates to private fintech. So stick around for that conversation. All right, Deirdre, let's get into it. I think the big one that kind of caught most folks off guard in, in the public markets was Amazon. I know this is a, a story you've been tracking fairly closely. We were on Fast Money the night of the report. And at the time, the stock opened up. The quarter was good. A lot of the the kind of margin stuff was pretty good. I, I think retail, again, is a, a theme two quarters in a row that a lot of investors are excited about. What were the things that really stuck out for you? Because that kind of 6 or 7% gain on Friday afternoon, the follow-through into Monday, this one just feels like that down 17 18% into the print, set it up where it wasn't going to take a whole heck of a lot for this thing to bounce. So curious thoughts, takeaways. And this is a bit of an outlier in the mega cap tech space over the last couple of weeks.
1: Yeah. And let me step back a moment and say that this has been sort of a strange earnings season, right? The way I characterized it going into it was the economics of AI versus the promise of AI. And the second half has been more characterized by show me the money, show me where you guys are going to bring in the money through artificial intelligence. And in that sense, the disappointing mega cap was actually Alphabet or Google this quarter, even though I thought that those results were very good. It showed a resilient, rebounding advertising market, a little bit weaker on cloud. But to me, it felt like there was more questions about Amazon than an Alphabet. But you set it up well, and that Alphabet shares have just been ripping this year. And Amazon has really been the mega cap laggard over the last 12 months. So in that sense, the bar was a little bit lower. And going into the quarter, What I was hearing was everyone cared about that cloud number, the AWS number, because, of course, it is the profit engine of Amazon and lets them do so many other things. And at least my read was a little bit of mixed signals. I went on TV right after the results were out, and I spoke to Amazon's CFO. And the first question I asked him was right away, can you call a bottom? Because that's what I thought investors cared the most about. And he said, I wouldn't characterize it that way. When I reported that, the stock fell in the after hours. But then let's go to the analyst call, which was about an hour after those comments. And Jassy, he didn't say that the bottom was in. He just said that there was some optimism. And he said that some deals were being signed in the current quarter that will show through. And that seemed to be good enough for the street. It turns out that they didn't need to hear that there was a bottom. They just needed to hear some optimism. And maybe that's, I should ask you this, Dan, is that sort of an excuse for people who were waiting in the wings who saw this sort of value disparity between Amazon and some of the other big cap names. It gave them an excuse to go
0: in. We were talking about it that night, too, uh, because we were wondering why it dropped. And then you came on a couple minutes later and said, I just got off the phone with such and such. And so the, the CFO, and, and that was the optimism, though, that they displayed later on in the Q&A during the call. To me, I, I think they, they were cognizant of the fact that what you were reporting was not what investors wanted to hear. And so you and I have been talking about this for months. Investors have been really nervous about whether or not the deceleration and growth in AWS was going to stop at 12%. And I don't think the results indicated that. The guidance initially didn't indicate that, but it did in, in some sort of squishy sort of commentary. And so I suspect this stock that was trading 119 down from, what was it, 145 just about a month and a half ago, when that comment came out, the stock rallied 7%, 10% or something. I suspect it gives it back, the for some of the reason that you just mentioned about Alpha. Because that quarter wasn't that bad. And there is share that is being taken, right, from the number one market share player in the space right now. And I think that Alphabet should get the benefit of that.
1: What about Microsoft? It's the number two player. And you could argue that is the most direct threat to AWS, right? Because it has that huge enterprise base. It has an exclusive partnership with OpenAI to build all of these generative AI products and tools for its customers. And those cloud results, they were better than expected. And beside Amazon's, they were much better. So it perhaps tells investors that Microsoft is monetizing some of that AI hype right now, whereas it was really difficult to see for Amazon. So I think it's more of an open question. But aside from AWS, I thought that there was plenty of other questions about Amazon's quarter, mainly that revenue guidance at its midpoint, coming in about $3 billion short of what the street was expecting. And this is the core. It's a lower margin business, but something that we've been talking about a lot on TechCheck is a competitive landscape. And if you're heading into the blockbuster holiday season, with revenue less than the street expected, who's taking that revenue? Is it possible? I don't know. I'm just speculating here. Is it possible that the rise of Timu and Shein and TikTok shopping is going to start to encroach on Amazon's core business, the e-commerce platform. And it's a point that was raised by some of the analyst notes the next day as well. I think Bernstein put it well. He said three questions that Amazon needs to answer. One, AWS, still an open question. Timu, that's the biggest question. What is the competitive landscape? And the third question, which I think Amazon did answer on the very positive side this quarter, profitability or operating income blew that number out of the water. And this is about as profitable in Amazon as we've seen. So that could be providing the bulls some reason to get back in
0: so two quarters in a row better than expected profitability on the retail business and just if everything that you're tracking about a consumer to me just says that that this q4 this holiday season is probably as good as it gets in the near term for Amazon and then to your point you've been reporting on the timu effect if those apps and those products and services are to gain some steam and, and there's a handful of, of, of those social gamified sort of things what does that mean on the edges so to me I think that's something that makes a, a ton of sense to me be focused on, but I would expect Amazon to give some of that back. I want to go to Microsoft for a second here because tomorrow, I mean, by the time you're listening to this, Microsoft will start charging for that Copilot 365, right, with the AI tools. They announced the pricing of that back in July. That happened to be the day of the all-time high for Microsoft. It had sold off to its lows, I think, last month, about 15% from those highs, which was considerable in a way. And so now this is where the rubber hits the road. To your point, the way you set it up is if these companies don't demonstrate how they're going to basically be able to monetize all the investment, not just the investment Microsoft, what, $13 billion into OpenEye, but the cost of compute and and the list goes on and on, right? Like, then at some point, does it become a bit of a headwind? And and we just won't know that for a couple of quarters, which is one of the reasons why I thought Microsoft initially had that up few percent, gave it back the next day, and it's basically trading about where it was the day that they reported. So I think the jury's still out trading about 29 times this year, 26 times now next, right? What is the margin implications going to be? Are they able to maintain this share with Azure based on the interest and in people going to that cloud to use those products and services, right? Like all this sort of stuff. So we just don't know. And I just think that a lot of these stocks are priced for perfection, which is one of the reasons why I'm super surprised that Amazon had the bounce in it. I'm not surprised that Microsoft's not getting totally rewarded for the quarter it did. But I was definitely surprised to your point that Alphabet down 9% the day after that result result was really eye-popping to me. It was kind of shocking.
1: Yeah, it's shocking considering too that it's core business, which is such a high margin business, advertising by all metrics, whether you look at YouTube, search was doing pretty well and pretty resilient. When it comes to Microsoft, as you said, a big question is the Copilot, right? 30 bucks per month per user. That is not cheap. And I'm still a little unclear on what Copilot will actually do for you, why you need it as an individual tool. I'm on ChatGPT and Bard every single day just through my browser. And I could call that my copilot, right? And you can go into a Google Doc and there's options to use BART as your copilot. To me, I thought the real proposition for generative AI is more in the cloud, the data that you already have, making a sort of unique model based on your business or an industry. So I guess to me, that proposition is still a little bit unclear what the co going to offer and whether the real value for a company is the back end, crunching all the data that you already have. The journal, I I think reported this week that Microsoft was giving away Copilot for about 10 bucks per user and losing $20 on average or as much as $80. So we'll see. I mean, there's lots of questions. This technology has to go beyond chatbots to really prove its disruptive quality.
0: I guess the other point is, and you know how enterprise buying happens, it's like sometimes they're just moving one thing over from this ledger to this ledger as new products and services are introduced. So I wonder if you are a medium-sized business and and you feel like that this could help productivity, it could help the back end, big data, structuring unstructured data, but maybe it's some consumer CRM application. The list goes on and on, right? Like the best stuff has not even been figured out to your point. Most of us are just still messing around with this sort of stuff. So it's going to take a while. I just think that, again, it's not going to be the sort of thing that they're going to be able to put their finger on and say the way that ChatGPT was able to say we got to 20 million users in this sort of date or whatever. Because I I guess the margin impact is not going to be, like, demonstratable for probably quarters to come and you see what's the churn on this. Because, again, if this is a product that people are not finding particularly useful, they're not going to continue to pay for it.
1: And here's what I would say is a knock through my personal usage of this, I can't imagine relying on these models too much because they're inaccurate. You cannot trust them yet. There's no way I'm gonna trust chat GPT or Bard to summarize a quarter for me and give me the biggest takeaways because I can't trust it. You always have to go back and check it. And I'm not sure the technology is there yet to be able to rely on it in the way that maybe you would if it was your co-pilot.
0: This actually is a good segue. The information had an article out on October 24th. We'll put in the show notes. uh, OpenAI's corporate sales come under pressure. um, As AI customers, I Cheaper options. So OpenAI, obviously, they have this deal with Microsoft to integrate their technology within all the products that we just talked about. But they also have direct sales to companies themselves. And so I, I I find it interesting that obviously Microsoft's competing with OpenAI. And like I think the article it was interesting. Salesforce still uses OpenAI, but is trying to power more of its AI services with open source models as well as those that it developed in house. So there's going to be competition coming from everywhere, right? Because if you're a CTO you have plenty incentive to figure out how to lower the cost of outsourcing this, right? No one wants to pay Microsoft more money. No one needs a new vendor in open AI, which is not proven from a customer service standpoint. So I I think it's interesting, and maybe this is purely anecdotal, but to track these sorts of mentions.
1: I think what you're bringing up now are just so many questions that are popping up as the cycle gets underway. And I agree with everything you've said in the sense that We just don't know the answers yet. And we did a Tech Check Weekly deep dive on the valuation of OpenAI and Anthropic, two of the most promising players, and generative AI. They're based on, let's say, OpenAI's revenue run rate of $1.3 billion. If that gets moved over to Microsoft or to an open source model or to someone else, that is a very difficult valuation to justify. And I don't know where that leaves these companies. And I guess that's we're still in the early phases. I guess that's the bull case for this is that we're the early stages. And if as I'm told repeatedly here in San Francisco, it's about the researchers and the quality of your data scientists. And that is the proposition that OpenAI and Anthropic have not necessarily the application that faces the consumer or even a Microsoft or a Google. All
0: right. We, we got to talk about Anthropic for a second because there's a journal article out suggesting that Google commits $2 billion in funding to Anthropic. This comes a few weeks after Amazon committed a billion and a half and a whole host of things come with that, right? The cloud usage and the like here. So again, maybe they're just paying into some equity for this thing that may or may not ever grow into its valuation, but they're at least getting these cloud contracts, they're doing a bunch of training on their chips and and the whole host, and I'm sure Google and Amazon are gonna take their pound of flesh. But I'm curious because when you think about this exclusivity that Microsoft has with OpenAI, the fact that Google and Amazon are both now considerable equity investors in Anthropic, but they also have cloud deals now and chip deal. the whole like, how is this gonna play out It just seems like that Anthropic is getting while the getting's good here and taking boatloads (laughs) of cash. But I I have to assume that at some point in the not so distant future, this is going to be something that we're talking a lot about. It's just a messy unwind
1: feels like 2021 all over again, right? Except for generative AI specifically, you just said Anthropic is getting well, the getting's good. We know that there's so much money being poured into these models. We may not know exactly where they go. And again, maybe this is just for the researchers and data scientists, but because Microsoft made this huge splashy investment in open AI for 49% of the company, perhaps it's Amazon and Google playing catch up, right? Saying, okay, we need to show customers that we have our own splashing name. And let me say, it's good to be anthropic and open AI these days. What's so interesting though, that I don't think enough people give credit to is the structure of these companies. It's so fascinating. Both of them are set up in a way that profits after a certain point are completely controlled By the boards of these companies. At OpenAI, I think it's five people. At Anthropic, it's six people, many of them who you've never even heard before, wonky data scientists or researchers. So I don't know how this all shapes up for the big tech companies, how much they can engage in the profitability of them, but maybe that's not what matters. As you said, the compute power is what's right in front of them. And if all these models are running on AWS or Google Cloud or Azure, that's gonna mean better revenue numbers for all three of them.
0: You mentioned that the revenue run rate right now at OpenAI is like one and a half billion, right? And we're talking about a $90 billion valuation. Just think about that. You just said it feels 2021. This feels 90 billion is the entire SPAC market from 2021 wrapped up in one. Just think about that. And we were yelling and screaming about the dozens and dozens of unprofitable companies coming public through that. How can a company like OpenAI ever get to the public markets, if this is where it's being minted at these sorts of valuations, it can never grow into a valuation that will ever make sense. Like To me, I've never seen anything like this. And it does smack of the really poor due diligence that was going on in a zero interest rate environment. And let's be clear, we're in a very different interest rate environment right now.
1: Yes. And where the cost of money is a lot higher. And again, I have to just plug our Tech Check Weekly. We put that valuation in context. It is worth so much more than an NVIDIA in the public markets when you look at a valuation to sales ratio. It's unfathomable how much money these companies are raising at the valuations they're at.
0: Yeah, just just looking at, let's call it a public comp, if you will, and it's not really a public comp, but Salesforce has $195 billion market capitalization. They're expected to do $38 billion in sales and they have a 78% gross margin. Okay, so that is a very profitable company right on the sales that they're doing. So think about that. Okay. Open AI right now at a billion and a half dollars in sales has little less than half the market capitalization, the market value. Now, granted, that is in the private markets here. But to me, something seems a bit out of whack. And when we talk about bubbles, bubbles can continue to inflate for a very long time. But when they burst, man, and you know, the other thing is, I'll just mention this, is like the last private company other than SpaceX that had near $100 billion value was Stripe. And and we know that early this year, Stripe got marked down 50% to somewhere at 45 or something like that. To me, it's just interesting, all of these big public companies tripping over each other to invest in these companies, but also you're seeing all these SPVs and all these private VCs, like deploying capital at valuations that we have just not seen in a very long time.
1: Everything old is new again, right? We end up where we are. However, I would say maybe what's different about this time is that there's so many billions of dollars coming from big tech who can very much afford this. They may be bringing in revenue on the promise before these things show their you know, true promise or true colors. All
0: right, let's quickly talk about this, because you just mentioned on a couple of occasions the genius data scientists that work at a, a lot of these AI firms, right? And we know that a lot of them have been plucked away for years um, from the, some of the kind of mega cap tech companies here. And I just think that it's interesting, this, this Biden administration's AI executive order, and it's been explained as a very far-reaching thing. There's going to be checks on some of these big companies here. How does the government, how does the commerce department, how do they have the ability like they're not hiring the best and the brightest data scientists, right? Those are the ones that are being plucked away and working in Anthropic and OpenAI. And it just seems like reading through some of the, like the compliance of this order, it just seems like, listen, think about what we've seen over the last seven, eight years when Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey or any of these guys have been hauled in front of Congress and the mockery that has been made of those conversations in the Q&A. I have to assume that big tech is just laughing at this order a little bit.
1: As is always the case right? The government over decades has proved no match for big tech. The big criticism is that they're always fighting yesterday's battles. But in this case, my takeaway from this executive order is that The Biden administration wants more transparency. We don't know what they're going to do with it or how they're even going to be able to (laughs) judge the risks or rewards of these models, but it's probably a right step, right? Rather than doing this much later, you raise a really good question though. How are they able to actually digest it and figure out what's going on when all the best data scientists are at the companies? But I think that the call for transparency, and that is something that you're seeing, and Autonomous driving also is probably a good objective. And it was interesting, even in the AV race, I sat down with the fire chief of San Francisco, who's been a big proponent against that technological shift. And I said, what are you going to do with the data they give you? She said, don't worry about it. We want it. We'll figure out how to do it. And we do have some engineers on staff. So we'll see. But you raise a good question.
0: Listen, I don't mean to mean like sound so cynical. And and at the end of the day, we would much rather have them actually focus on this sort of stuff than than not be focused on it. And and maybe if there is some shred of data that helps guide some Policy at such an early stage, that that might be a good thing.
1: And think about Facebook, right? And social media. Had the government had access to all the data, maybe they could have had social scientists looking at it, right? Who knows? Maybe you actually need to get away from the researchers and the data scientists, and you need to really see its effect on society. So I don't know. I don't know what they're gonna do with it, but it's probably good that they're looking at it at these early stages.
0: Here's another one um, that I thought really caught my eye and it's actually weighing on NVIDIA's stock here. The Wall Street Journal had an exclusive report. You saw this today. This is October 31st, um, that $5 billion of China's orders of NVIDIA's advanced chips, right, that go into train these models, these generative AI models and the like, into the uh, supercomputers and the data centers and everything like that. They could be in limbo, as the article says. And it's interesting to me that this stock is down below 400 um, for the first time in about three months. It traded as high after they reported... Their last quarter, I think 515 in the aftermarket. So it's definitely in the throes of of a bit of a sell off here. We talked about this on the pod. There was probably double and triple ordering ahead of these export bans. But it really does seem like the Biden administration wants to sharpen their pencil a little bit on this because we know NVIDIA tweaked some of these chips and they were just really workarounds to get them into the Chinese market. But there is considerable national security concerns right now. And we know that these things end up in the gray markets and everything like that. But how do you think about this? because we've talked about the eye-popping year-over-year growth that NVIDIA has had because of their kind of stranglehold on these chips. And we know that AMD is coming out today after the close with their Q3 earnings. They're going to be trying to talk up the chips that they have to compete with this H100 and the like here. I think they're not coming out until early next year. But this could be something where if there is some real competition out there and some of this orders get canceled, let's say, from who knows if there's enough demand here in in the West, in my opinion, to gobble that up, especially at the price points that they are, and I'm just wondering if Nvidia is on the precipice of filling in that gap from late May when they you know released that eye-popping quarter and guidance.
1: Here's when I get a little cynical regarding the rising geopolitical tensions. I think that. Chip companies have found loopholes. They will continue to find loopholes. As you said, there's double and triple ordering going on. You raise an, an interesting point, though, in that competition is already coming for NVIDIA. So do they see this as an opportunity to do more? Again, I'm skeptical on that also. Google, Amazon, they're trying to create their own chips as an alternative. And we still, aside from really qualitative commentary around it, we don't have cold, hard numbers. I'd like to know who's using these chips. They're unlikely to be able to sell to China as well. Again, it's just the promise of NVIDIA, and it's so much more than a hardware company. They're creating an ecosystem around generative AI. And that's something to keep in mind, is that while everyone's trying to catch up on the hardware, it is creating that ecosystem that's going to outlast the next company that's able to produce a powerful chip for generative AI. Well,
0: I just wonder, as we spend more time listening to the end customers talking about the cost of compute and their ability to pass through those costs in commercialized products where they would be able to monetize this, I wonder that a cheaper chip, AMD is going to compete on price. They're not going to have a better chip, right? So at some point, that is really going to put a dent, in my opinion, in the NVIDIA story, at least in the near term versus expectations. All right, last thing, Dave, before we get out of here, let's talk about Apple because there was a tech check tweet with your picture on it, doing the reporting. It said, Apple has a China problem. In recent weeks, Chinese tax audit into its biggest manufacturer, accusations of censorship over Jon Stewart's canceled show and reports of the Huawei has overtaken market share in China. Talk to me a little bit about this because make no mistake about it, Tesla, and it's down considerably since it reported earnings. It's down considerably since it reported its Q2 earnings. Over the summer, they have a China problem too. And Apple's problems are not that dissimilar to Tesla's problems. They rely on China for manufacturing, for supply chain, and for consumer demand, and the more they try to diversify away from it, the more expensive it is, the more it weighs on their cost, and the more nationalistic tendencies might be building in China towards products like smartphones and EVs at a time where... Maybe the government has all the incentive in the world to start shadow banning these products. So talk to me a little bit about expectations into Thursday's print in Apple.
1: So there's a ton of opportunity in China, right? A middle class that's growing. It's at 350 million people, more than the population of the US. So the promise is there for companies that can navigate it like Apple and Tesla. But at some point, gain that market and you do really well in it. And it becomes a liability because you cannot control the Communist Party. And the Communist Party loves their own homegrown players to ultimately win. So if you get too big, there's always the risk that they smack you down. What you're referring to is our Tech Check Weekly piece. Again, it's another deep dive into all the risks surrounding Apple in China and how we got here. There's some really interesting tidbits like Apple CEO Tim Cook, his relationship with Terry Goh, the CEO and founder of Foxconn, goes back decades. And that's what made Apple so successful, not just in China, But as a whole, because of that supply chain, that famous supply chain, and it feels like in recent years, Apple has been a little bit more shielded from the blowback from geopolitical tensions. But this year feels like there's been a little bit of a tipping point. You had the communist government limiting government officials' use of iPhones. You have more scrutiny at Foxconn. You have Huawei, right? And and there's got to be more to that story than just they created a phone (laughs) that is now more appealing because that business was left for dead after the US export controls. What's interesting is Huawei really bided its time. They've come out with this new smartphone model and ecosystem to try and compete with Apple. So it remains a risk. It's one that maybe investors become a little complacent about because the Promise is so big and demand has been so strong in China, but it's really going to be central this earnings season. Anything that Tim Cook says about their relationship with China. The other one that I want to mention, we were talking about today on tech check, is the sheer amount of money that Apple brings in for doing nothing by making Google the default search on its Safari browser more than $20 billion. It accounts for something like 30% of more than 30% of net income for Apple as a whole, 35% of gross income for Apple as a whole. So if that goes away, that could be just as big a risk.
0: Apple clearly down 13% from its recent highs, feels like there's finally headwinds. Like the idea that the iPhone 15 was the first iPhone to ship from India directly to our shores being assembled there. That's the sort of thing that could cause the Chinese to take a pause. And then the other point that you just made about that very cozy relationship that they've had. Listen, they paid for it. Let's be very clear with Alphabet, with Google o- over the years. But that's something as they find themselves competing more and more, Alphabet has a lot of leverage there. So to me, I agree. This is a stock trading. I'm not saying I agree with you that you think this is expensive, but trading at 26 times expected earnings growth of, let's say, mid to high single digits on mid to high single sales growth. And everything that I think about, this has been a very stable gross margin business, especially as they've been growing their iOS installed bases. I think it's above $2 billion right now, right? So that kind of mix between their hardware margins, right, and the higher margins that they've had for services, it's imperative that they continue to grow that installed base. But if reshoring, right, and some of these other costs are going to start to weigh on margins, that's going to weigh on the stock. It's still up 30% of the year. So down 13%, to me, could just be getting started. But again, maybe you have a little bit of an Amazon reaction if the results and guidance aren't as bad as some feel because sentiment seems pretty poor. In this name at the moment,
1: and then you take into the account too the fact that it's not even growing, right? <laughs> the one mega cat.
0: Uh, I got you. All right. Well, listen, Debo, I really appreciate your time today. We covered a lot of ground, and I hope to see you back next week. We will see you all on Tech Jack. We will make sure to put those deep dives in the show notes. So thanks a lot for being here. Thanks, Dan. Stick around for my conversation with Stuart Sop and Trevor Marshall of Current. cross riverbank member fdic welcome back to okay computer i'm dan nathan i am here with trevor marshall he is a cto of current and co-founder and Stuart sopp ceo of current hi guys hi thanks for having us this is weird because you guys are my landlords but we were just out in vegas we were in the Win and the encore and where was that where was the money 2020 where was that the venetian, was the venetian. venetian. Yeah. um pretty dope right like next to the sphere now that is uh, a lot where of talk is talk about The uh, Sphere. Yeah. I don't know about you guys. I got back and I actually bought tickets to oh, you see you did at yeah. The Sphere yeah. in February. Like It seems like that's all anybody wanted to talk about. It, even in the casino, you
2: see the signs. Yes. Was like, they put signs everywhere. The Sphere's here. Every person I overheard was like, where is The Sphere? Yes. So, there was uh,
0: a lot of that. All right. So we were out, out at Money 2020. You guys have been a lot of Money 2020s or events like that few. over the years. Yeah. You and I did a couple events together. We walked around. We like like pressed the flesh a little bit. You were on stage. That was fancy of you, huh? Thank you. Yeah, I was presenting
2: the era of value for fintech. Looks pretty good. It was co-presenting, actually, or co-paneling with a guy called Imad from Mercury. Yeah. And Lucinda from Axios, who moderated the panel. Yes. And so, yeah, generally talking about the structure and how funding markets have changed, how compliance has changed, basically how fintech has changed since the bull market is probably okay.
0: We want to talk a little bit. There's been some stuff in the public markets that doesn't feel particularly great in fintech land in general, but it feels like when I was out there, it felt like there was a lot of optimism. Is that Mm -hmm. fair to say? Do you guys feel that way? The way I would phrase it, yes, but I think more optimism than I
2: thought would there. So coming out of 2022, you think there's going to be no investors and everyone's head head between their their legs or between their tails. And like when we got there, it was interesting about how many investors, different investors actually, more longer term, longer horizon type investors, but there's a lot of people trying to do stuff. uh, Collaborative in a way. Collaborative and just in the spirit of, it reminded us a little bit of the old days. Yeah. More
3: informed. Optimism, less
0: hype yeah, yeah um, that's right so let's talk about the era of value i was there I, I, I saw you and ahmad from mercury and so like you guys on the panel had a very collaborative sort of nature it felt like lucinda who i think is a great journalist she was trying to do what journalists do like yeah. to where are we in this kind of phase here and i think you guys have actually had a very measured approach i knew you guys in 2021 and things were getting a little over their skis i think everyone yeah. could feel it even investors felt it and i want to bring that back to at some point what's going on in and around the excitement around ai but let's Let's focus on Ahmad at Mercury. He's serving a different client than yours. So so let's talk about where you think like somebody who's servicing the fintech community Mm -hmm. and founders and and where you guys sit. Because we've spent a lot of time talking about your customer base Mm -hmm. in in a way and like what you guys can do for them. And I feel like there's a really good inflection point coming now because where rates are, where inflation is, and, and we've talked about this. Where is the error value? Where are we right now in this thing, the way you think about this?
2: Yeah. So when we were talking a panel, I think the thing that affected us both, the, you should get him on this podcast at some point. 100% great. For him too. Yeah. yeah. And he's business, uh, yeah. B2B, yeah. Uh, fintech. And so the thing that affected both sides, from a consumer and a business point of view, has been the compliance. The compliance levers have been pulled. There's much more focus on the issuing banks and rigor around what they need to do, and also BAS in general, Mm -hmm. which is a real derivative. You might imagine having an issuing bank and a BAS provider, and you can imagine the real customer is something like four levels down from where the FDIC can really see anything with clarity. And so I think a lot of focus on tidying up all. That's something that's affected all of us. And And that really is the wake
0: of the SVB and the banks that failed in, in earlier in the year.
2: Yeah, I think it went from crypto and SVB, right? right? So SVB definitely benefited the B2B fintech crowd for yeah. sure, right? Like it was a major tailwind for them. And of, of course, JP Morgan and Citizens and everyone else. Yeah.
0: How were you like, Trevor, when you think about this, okay, some of the themes that you've been working on from your days when you guys were traders at an investment bank to like startup founders, you definitely have had uh, a toe in the water as it relates to crypto. The one-two punch from last fall with FTX, and we've talked a bit about that, but to the regional banking crisis that caused this wave of regulatory, was that something that you guys thought was going to happen in and around FTX and work its way through fintech? Or was it bookended and now we're on the other side of this a little bit? Bit and now a lot of fintech companies, both public and private markets, have to figure out how to deal with this new regulatory environment. This new yeah, definitely like the
3: new regulatory environment is here to stay, and it's probably a good thing. Like there, there should be from a bank's perspective, like fintech often, especially in the U.S., is working on behalf of bank partners, and they do need to be able to see all the way through, Mm -hmm. understand customers, because at the end of the day, our customers are our bank's customers. That's how it works. This is like the position that we've always taken. I think we really had great relationships with our banks throughout the process. I think when you get into that bank of banks stacking up the Russian bass <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. When you start stacking the Bass providers on top of each other, I can see like how the clarity around roles and responsibilities can become murky. It's It definitely can be done. There's definitely good ways to do it. And there's definitely good providers out in the market doing it. But I do think that the way that we've approached it and the way that some of the others have approached us where you really engage directly with your sponsor banks, provide sort of the technology solutions, the compliance solutions, the oversight solutions in partnership with the banks is just a far more efficient strategy so that we can really just focus on technology and delivering the product and not get dragged down into like all sorts of data connections that become very complex.
0: We spent a lot time talking about the macro. On, on our pods, Stu, you've been yeah. on Fast Money, and it, I think you're coming on later on this week. And, and it's always interesting to us because we spend a lot of time thinking about how the rate environment affects valuations in the public markets. And you are able to, through your customer base, give us a sense of like how higher rates, inflation are uh, affecting your sort of customer. Putting that macro hat mm-hmm. on though, and I, I think that it goes back and forth. You just referenced, let's say, a company like Mercury that was maybe the beneficiary of SVB and some of these others going down. How do you think about, again, in this inflationary environment, in this macro environment, how is it affecting your customer Mm -hmm. right now? And how does that inform the stuff where you sit and the products that you need to build? I know that we've spent some time on credit building and and the build card and the like here. Mm -hmm. You guys obviously have a high interest savings account. Talk to us about the environment right now, because we're Mm -hmm. on the doorstep of the Fed's second to last meeting of this year. It feels like there's going to be a Hawkish pause, like some of the data still feels hot is on the mm-hmm. e- economic front, but they're not ready to say we're done raising interest rates.
2: I don't think they are. I think the big thing that ties this all together at Money 2020 and for our customers is the cost of money is just materially higher. Yeah. And we've never seen the cost of money go in this direction so fast and so far. And I think we're just about to find out, like it's been a year and a bit since they started, right? Yeah. And cost of money is higher. And so what does that mean for our customers? Our customers primarily working class, living paycheck to mm-hmm. paycheck, right? Primarily. Of course, we bank a whole bunch of different people. There was a CFPB report out, I think it was like this week. And it said it finds credit card companies charge consumers record high amount of dollars, $130 billion in interest and fees in 2022. Yeah. That is only higher in 2023, record profits from credit card companies. now. What you're seeing there is cost of money is higher. People, inflation is very high, obviously, to deal with that. The cost of money is there to deal with the inflation. And I don't think wage growth is there for for a lot of people. It's starting to come through. You saw some of the strikes. They're starting to settle now. But it's not going to cover everything. And everyone's money is going far less than it ever was. And they're filling that gap with... I think, misaligned product market fit in unsecured cards. And so you're seeing the trillion plus dollars doing that going up. And so people who revolve continuously shouldn't be on these revolving cards Mm -hmm. really, right? They go deep down into the low 550, 580 and things like that. That's a misaligned product market fit. That's a bad product. And a lot of money is going to be spent with those customers. And so obviously at Current, we've built the build card. Which was like a bit, it was a bit of a centerpiece for some people. We know some of our competitors
0: are jealous.
3: But so yeah, talk, tra- yeah. H- how, how do you know some of your yeah. competitors? Oh, we asked them. Oh. <laughs> well, but it's
0: interesting. Oh, so, Trevor, I want to hear that because you just mentioned this UAW and it seems like a coup for workers right now for the first time in a yeah. long time. So, what did they get? They obviously got an immediate increase. I think like in GM, it was like 11% increase and it's going to increase up to 25% in over, comp four, years over four years or, th- or something yeah. like that. But they also got cost of living adjustment yeah. sort of thing. So like, Trevor, when you think about building these products, and again, you just mentioned, Stu, you've never seen rates go up this fast and, and mm-hmm. inflation go up this fast. So when you yep, talk yeah. about some of your competitors being jealous about the product set that you have right now, it seems like maybe the worker, maybe your Customer all of a sudden is in, in a bit of a good spot as it relates to the product offerings that they can have relative to the things that exist in the current financial environment with these revolving cards at these rates that are should not
3: be used. Yeah, like Sue said, it's wrong tool for the job, yeah. and that's basically when you have a hammer, everything's a nail situation. And so that's where fintech comes in. That's where we should come in, which is create new products, create new tools, create new ways and solutions for people to achieve the outcomes and that they are looking for, which is ultimately a better financial health and than what they can get from other places. Traditional banks just can't come down into where most people are. There is that reality of inflation is high and wage inflation is not. A lot of our customers are continuing to struggle, and so they need something else that comes to them, not stretching themselves towards these products that ultimately will leave them into a larger cycle of debt that will have a pretty tragic conclusion, naturally.
0: But we talked about this from the multi-product banking solution, because I think this is really important to that answer. Again, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. That's not the approach that you guys have taken of serving your client base.
3: Yeah, exactly. And that's This is where we've had to come in, which is we created a stack that can actually create and serve different products at Mm -hmm. once and allow the data between all these products to come together and actually increase the personalization of knowing, hey, we can actually do earned wage access for this person, Mm -hmm. not using the data that a lot of these customers are credit invisible. Many of our customers don't even have credit scores Mm -hmm. either because they haven't had access to it in the past. They're relatively young. But how do we give them the tool, the liquidity tools that they need in certain cases? How do we give them the savings account that we need Mm -hmm. in other cases? How do we give them faster access to their paycheck in other circumstances? We've looked at what are the customer problems and then we've built out the solutions to those problems based on the problems, not based on we have this, let's sell more of this. And try to get people to use this.
0: Yeah. So let's talk a little bit because, again, on the other side of everything that went down in March and April with these bank failures, there's going to be increased regulations. We talked a little bit about compliance. Mm-hmm. How is some of at least the proposed regulations, how are you guys thinking about that? Like, how? How is fintech, these challenger banks in, in general, let's let's lump a, a lot of them together, does the nimbleness actually let you guys evolve much better than some of these incumbents? I know that obviously the incumbents, they have huge regulatory frameworks and they have huge teams dealing with this and they've allocated lots of resources to do this, but that also gives them actually more incentive with all the junk fees and the stuff that exists. Does your nimbleness give you an opportunity to disrupt in some ways? Always. But I don't think nimbleness around compliance
2: and regulation is an advantage. Mm -hmm. It may have done in like a previous decade Mm -hmm. or something like that, but certainly not over the last few years. We've staffed up in in our compliance department. We've tried to really beef up and, and be on the front foot. We want to be on the front foot and asking our issuing banks, what can we do better? What do we need to do so that we're doing everything that the regulators may or may not want? I think at this level, we get audited from various regulatory agencies of our third parties from our issuing banks. And when you have an abstraction layer like Trevor and the team have built, Mm -hmm. you have multiple issuing banks, there's multiple audits. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff going on there, right? And then you have the visa audit, and then sometimes you have the, the federal audit and things like that. So I think when it comes to fintech, we are used to being checked right? We are used to it. I think there's this misnomer in the market that there's a sort of wild west situation. It is not. I do think, you know, for some of these banks and Bass providers, there was some maybe going fast. And so they're, they're tidying that up. And I think that's related to FTX. It's related to the SVB crisis and things like that. This is welcome rigor from the regulators. And I think, look, they're, they're trying to make sure that America and the consumer is safe, and we're all about that. We're consu- Americans, consumers first. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to give as much value, take as much of the middleman value that you see in those fees and all that inefficiency that you see in the traditional banking system. And we're trying to transmit that value back to the consumer through efficient tech, legal, compliant tech. That's what we're doing.
0: Yeah. And so when, when you think about it, just through the lens that I look at a lot of this stuff in, in the public markets, fintech has been a space that has had a really tough go. Mm. And again, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact the uncertainty in and around, um, you know, the bank failures mm. and who is likely to make it, the increased regulatory costs associated with that, the speed in which interest rates, these are all things that we've been chatting about for a while. But then this week, I look at like a company like SoFi has a really good doing set of well. results yeah. and they're able to upgrade their revenue guidance. And I, I obviously, it was a bit of a headwind, the student loan payment issue. And now that's back on the case. It gives them the ability to lean into some of these other areas. How how do you guys think about that again? Do you think, at least in the public markets, PayPal is a great example. And Trevor, you and I, a few weeks ago, talked a little bit about the payment sector and some of the challenges that exist there, really just from, like, these have been very profitable businesses, right? But the public market investors are not rewarding them anymore just for that. So how are you guys thinking about what, let's say, in the public markets a little bit, and how might, that inform where we are relative Mm -hmm. to a bottom in the private markets. I got one section. Maybe Trevor can yeah. follow on after. I think the
2: clearly payments are being punished. Yeah. You look at Adyen, PayPal's more of a payment. line. yeah, line. Yeah. And they're all like getting absolutely destroyed. And so I think that's one sector that the public market analysts and investors are looking at. I think SoFi is different. Obviously, the tailwind has been—it's been a headwind for three yep. years or whatever it yep. is. But the tailwind has been obviously students now repaying. But in that time, they were forced to diversify their portfolio, their revenue streams, mm-hmm. to broaden out. They went into Short term lending into some earn wage access stuff, BNPL, bought a processor. Now, mm-hmm. if you look at current, now thereafter, and more affluent demographic yep. like this, well-known strategy for them. If you look at current, we have similar things, right? For everyone 620 FICO and below, mm-hmm. current solves. Everyone 620 and above, SOFI solves. So when you think about the public markets, we see ourselves more akin to SOFI and analog than we would do a PayPal or a payments form.
0: Yeah, when I think about that, and I think what you mentioned is like the top of the funnel for them was like refinancing yeah. student debt, okay? Mm-hmm. And so again, with a 625 or lower FICO, that's not something that exactly that you're solving for Um, at that point. but. Ultimately, it seems in me getting to know your products and and getting to know your guys' mission, if you do the things that you guys set out to do right, that your customer, as they grow their FICO score, as they actually have increased incomes, and this goes back to some of the wage stuff that we might see with worker empowerment, that sort of thing, it just gives you guys the opportunity to move into those sorts of segments. In my mind, so how, how do you think about that when you start to see some like green shoots with some of these models that have been really depressed over, let's call it, the last couple of years? i think the multi-product
3: strategy is really the key there which is you have a product a suite of products that can react to whatever the environment might be let's say if crypto ever does a thing we do have that available yeah. within the app it's not something that we like actively promote but that's something if Customers see the value in it, they can get the value from that. Same thing with savings. Now, with rates going higher, it's becoming more and more important to be able to keep up with inflation if you are able to save some money. We have enough breadth to really make sure that whatever the economic environment is, it's not like our consumers are coming out of this amazing period. Mm-hmm. We've always been working with people who are living closer to a permanent recession than not. So, this environment is more, a little bit more of the same for them. And so, the business model that's required to serve them just by default weathers economic Changes much better.
0: All right, let, let's switch to generative AI because this is something that I think is captivating investors in both public and private markets, at least from my standpoint in the public markets. Just over the last three weeks or so, we've seen both Amazon throw like hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars, at Anthropic. And we've seen Alphabet being reported this week getting back in there too. Investors are tripping over each other. And not just investors, these are strategic investors and these are strategic deals, right? Like locking up cloud services and a whole host of other things as it relates to chips. Talk to me how you guys are thinking about this within fintech, okay? Because obviously right now the focus is on productivity tools and it's focused on large language models. I have to think there's lots of applications as far as like the platform that you guys are building. And maybe let's broaden it out a little bit to other fintech in general. Yeah, I think you start broad, which is like, why are the large
3: cloud providers investing so much? And it's because it really is the future of their product. We're entering cloud 2.0, like that is absolutely what's happening now, which is, Data driven products, mm-hmm. data personalized products. And I think Google should be best positioned in this space mm-hmm. over time, but they are fighting for it right now. It's a very, it's a very critical time for cloud providers to get the products because of the downstream impacts it has mm-hmm. on the people who are implementing it, like we are. Mm-hmm. When ChatGPT first came out, I think I came on here. This was like maybe six. Yeah. six months ago we were talking about it and I was sharing a little bit about and we've gotten some of those use cases up and running regarding how to add efficiency into your customer support department the really exciting thing for us is just availability now of all the investment that's gone into that we're a Google partner like we we host everything and almost everything in GCP and they really do have first class cloud 2.0 data products like vertex AI which allows you to do very quick training across multiple different types of models to find online pre- inferences. So I can give it, here's a bunch of information, predict a certain outcome Mm -hmm. to me really quickly. And that is how a lot of our product is evolving as well, which gives us a a tremendous advantage just generally from how much risk we can take on customers, the predictiveness of the uh, customer's profitability so we can drive incentives. There's a whole bunch of things that come out of this, but upstream from that is the cloud providers having that product Mm -hmm. available and having the best in class. So this is definitely a fight like it's a justified
0: fight okay so let's say 18 months ago okay you're accessing GCP okay and you're running these basically like you're running this process to evaluate Mm -hmm. this customer and the credit you want to Mm -hmm. give them Mm -hmm. now okay so using let's just say this advanced model okay how much more is that costing you to do that versus let's say 18 months
3: the amazing thing is that like the stuff that we're actually adopting there's some LLM stuff, like in the customer service side, which is really just these general models that cost hundreds of millions of dollars Mm -hmm. to train Mm -hmm. and all these things. But there's actually just the machine learning of your own data against the outcomes that you're trying to predict. And the investment that's going into the LLM side, so the Gen AI Mm -hmm. side, is having just a tremendous amount of second-order benefits into the other types of products that these cloud providers offer. And so really what we're talking about is like machine learning ops. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of instrumentation and engineering that goes into how do you set the system up to get a predictive outcome? And that has become easier and cheaper because of a lot of the investment that's going into the Gen AI side. So companies like Current are now able to adopt Way better data-driven strategies because of that investment. So that's really where we're starting to see the benefit. And over time, as those models become even better, there will be Gen AI applications that we can use internally as well.
0: Stu, from, from a standpoint, are you guys able right now to see the return on this investment? And it's a sort of thing because I can tell that Trevor right. gets excited yeah. about this sort of stuff because this is like happening probably quicker than you would have expected access to this. Yeah, we are. I think to put it
2: into really high-level dumb language from my perspective is, you look at companies like Capital One that have spent decades Mm -hmm. building data sets, being the forefront of data-driven AI machine learning credit applications, and also personalization. We are very close to being able to compete, which is insane given staffing levels Mm -hmm. and all that stuff. And I think what you're gonna see is a divergence and and a clustering of fintechs that have cleaned their data, have data governance, and then have the right team and the right know-how to use some of these cloud providers, AI slash machine learning offerings. And it's almost like trading, like Citadel, right? They're making markets. It's binary. If you're the first to market, if you're the first to that trade, you win. It doesn't matter if it's by 0.1 of a millisecond or hundred milliseconds. If you're first, you win. And so there is going to be this real power law and divergence in fintech, especially around credit, and especially in the sub-620 FICO bucket where it's behavioral, Right. There isn't there's thin or no file, right? And so there's a ton of data you have to feed it and can feed these machines to get behavioral feature stores up and running so that you can be very efficient in how you grow and how you offer the right kind of products and the right kind of money to these people. So we're both super excited for like basically the same reason. There's a definite Venn diagram here of jointly being excited. And you're gonna see this real separation. Current is uniquely placed over the last eight years from what Trevor and his team have built to take advantage of this and to be at the forefront compared to almost anyone else.
0: Listen, guys, I really appreciate it. It was great being out there with you. I appreciate you being here with us today, and I look forward to checking back with you in the very near future. Thanks a lot for being here. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, stuff. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.